Welcome to the first burning conversation where we trade in our shot glasses for coffee mugs and we actually try to think of something kind of smart to say, kind of relevant. And I want to start off today's episode by mentioning a Roham tweet where he is quoting, I believe, one of his developers by saying, the most robust systems are evolved and not designed. Now, that's a really interesting tweet, really interesting comment. Definitely can't work this out on my own. So I'm introducing Richard Conti as our first guest on Burning Conversations. The idea of this segment or these line of episodes is to bring on someone who knows something more than me, maybe can educate me. Not quite convinced Rick is the guy to do it, but we're going to give him a shot. Um, I used to coach him a long time ago. Uh, he was an All-American, better player than me. So he's definitely coming in with s- swinging a big one. And, you know, we're not going to treat him lightly. We're going to push back at every opportunity. Uh, so without further ado, Richard Conti. <laughs> you know, uh, what you always forget to tell people is that I was only an All-American with all of your all of your support, help, and guidance. That it was it. Well, well it was hold on. We we, we don't role. do that here. There's no self promoting on the podcast. We reserve that for Twitter. We do enough of that on the Twitter sphere. You know, we totally reserve that there. So we won't, you know, go into any more of that. But uh, appreciate the kind words, and um, <laughs> we'll return the question in turn to you with. The most robust systems are evolved and not designed. So tell me what that means to you in the little that you know of this NBA top shot space. So that reminds me of something that was said in the book Bitcoin Standard, um, mm. where it's like, you know, zero, zero to one can be really hard. And then one to many can sometimes be really easy. But it kind of goes uh, against the opposite of, you know, so, so what that specific quote is trying to say is that whenever you build something new, mm-hmm. that is way more creative or way more challenging than taking something that you already have and making like an amendment to it. Um, and so there's kind of like with Bitcoin, like the first mover advantage where it's like, okay, well, Bitcoin is the first, so it's going to be adopted. And so I think where that gets, you know, where that gets a little incorrect is that sometimes something comes along that is just better. So I think with, you know, NBA blank shot, I'm still trying to decide, is this like something that is an evolution of the modern day trading card? Or is it something that is standalone? Is it completely on its new? Mm. Is it a zero to one or is it a one, one to many? And so I think it's a, it's a worthy and an interesting conversation to have. Yeah. Thank you for setting the stage. That's exactly where we want to go with this conversation. I I think for me, when I've evaluated this NBA bottom shot landscape, the thing that struck me is, is that I'm, I think there is a definite opportunity for these moments to have intrinsic value. I'm a big intrinsic value guy. If I own something, it's got to do something for me beyond the speculation that someone might want it at a higher price later. Uh, There needs to be some sort of functional value. And we've talked a lot about how Swish might be able to accomplish that. We're in week two. Uh, We're almost at 300 users. I feel like it's gaining more popularity. Um, 
There's also the announcement of a developing hard court application where you can use these moments, play with those moments to what degree and to what extent. It's not clear. Um, and I think part of that is, is leaving a window of creative opportunity for the guys to kind of see how this market develops. You know, I, I don't necessarily think you need to script out how these moments have value. Um, but I, I'm, I'm careful to not um, project too far in the distance of what that intrinsic value might be. And so I, I think this conversation is important because, you know, I've made some moment purchases on what I believe to be intrinsic value. However, I think it's clear, A, the market doesn't believe me in those evaluations. But B, you know, like, I, I think it's going to be a continually changing space. Um, and to have the conversation where it goes, um, I think will be interesting for not only us to have, but for other people to listen to. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. No, I think, I think it's spot on. And it's moving, you know, so quick. Like this is... Like you, like this, this, this came out. You said January one. Well, I got introduced to it in January one, but um, it was launched in October. And, and honestly, I'd read an article about it, and you know, I talked about it in the first episode. Like Top Shot, hate that name, hate it. I've said it probably five times already, but you know, we'll address that later. The, right. um, you know, what what I like about it on my second review is, is that you own your pieces and then you can then use them in fantasy. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, you're an experienced card trader, Rick, like tell me about what your experience has been and like how the classification of cards kind of go, because I really liked how we discussed the rainbow range of scarcity. Yeah. So how, so how it mostly works. And I have, obviously the most amount of experience when it comes to, to trading baseball cards specifically is in baseball, you have this like concept of like a prospect where it's like, okay, this guy isn't that good right now, but he's going to be really good in say three to four to five years. You don't really, you have that a little bit in hockey. You can make the argument a little bit in basketball, but you really don't have it at the level that you do, you do in baseball, this like minor league kind of system. And so what people try to do is they invest in baseball cards of minor league players and then hopefully when they get really big, really good, you know, in three to four years down the road, those cards appreciate in value. And so what we do to kind of manage like the scarcity, well, not what we do, but with the, the, the tops and Bowman really, the tops owns Bowman. What they do is they have this rainbow of colors, right? So for every card, there is like a refractor version and that's numbered usually out of 500 there's a purple version that's numbered out of 250, blue out of 150, green out of 99, gold out of 50, orange out of 25, red out of five. And then the coveted one is the one of one super fractor. And for every single one of these kinds of cards, there's the non-autograph and the autograph version. So the big one that sold recently, the Mike Trout for several millions, that is Mike Trout's first Bowman Chrome super fractor one of one autograph. So that is like, the highest level Mike Trout anything that will ever be sold ever. It's the most valuable card in the future in the in this industry, really. And so that's kind of like the scarcity breakdown. Okay. And yeah, and it really, you know, a, as you know, like the rookie cards are more valuable than the veteran cards, and then 
with Bowman coming out and this emphasis on being a prospect, it's like that first Bowman is kind of the new rookie card because it's like his first baseball card in general. Okay. So that's just kind of like how that works when it comes to baseball cards. And it's very, very similar with basketball. There's just, you know, the cards appreciate and value a lot quicker because you don't have as much of that prospect waiting period. Gotcha. So, you know, I, I think that that range system makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's easy to follow. Uh, it's easy to, I guess, price check um, and then have it be somewhat of a guide for the different players and editions of cards that might come out. Um, but how are, like, real-time value of those cards collected? So there used to be this company a long time ago called Beckett, and Beckett used to do tons of research, surveys, going to stores, and, and figuring, like, hey, how much is this card selling for at your store? And then they would publish a book, like, every month. But, you know, in the increasing, increasingly digital age, there are kind of two spaces where we determine the value of, uh, of cards, and one is eBay. So it's just go on eBay, type in the card that you want, then you go to sold listings, and you kind of just take the average of the last, like, five or six of the most recent sold ones, and you get like an approximate value. And then there's what's called Check Out My Cards or Comsi, where you actually ship your cards to a, a, a warehouse in Washington. And what this company does is that it, it, it puts it online and then people can buy and sell. And then you could pay to have, you know, whatever bundle of cards that you own shipped to you. So people do flip on there. And it's kind of like, you know, blank shot where it's like it shows you all the sellers that are selling this particular card who has the lowest asking price, and then you buy that one. So that's kind of where, you know, you get your valuation uh, in, in, the, in the baseball card industry. And how often can you expect to have those evaluate or those price valuations updated? So they only really, that's a great question, and it is a problem. And they, there's so much arguing. I've argued with people about values of cards tremendously, and it's really annoying. Um, it gets updated when a card gets sold. You know, it's almost like real estate. It's like, how much is a house worth? Well, you'll never know until it actually it actually sells on the market. And so that's just kind of what we're waiting for. If there's a card that hasn't sold, they're just sitting on eBay. And what hasn't sold recently, you know, in months, you could say like, okay, well, that's an old value. We need like a new value for this card. And you kind of have to wait for one to sell. Or you, or you determine the market value when you overpay for it or you undersell it. And, you know, the, the reason why I was kind of spurred to ask that question is not but 20 minutes before we jumped on this uh, podcast, Kraken or The Kraken on the Discord channel posted something similar to this effect, saying, with the slow grading speed of the physical card market and the inability to protect from theft, damage, and poor printing, this is elite, this being bottom shot. If I spent 2000 on cards, I'm not getting those sold or framed with a grade under six months. If you live across the world, good luck getting value without shipping costs. And so he ultimately begins to say that his marriage might be better with the addition of NBA bottom shot because he's going to get that immediate price valuation. There's not going to be you know this jibber jabber crap between collectors saying which card is valued more or less, you know what the value is, and you know if people are buying it or not. You know, I, Right now, NBA bottom shots being evaluated on low market asks. Um, I, you know, For me, I don't value that as a true price because if it was a true price, it would have already been purchased. However, it is an interesting place to kind of begin to evaluate your collection, um, and it gives you good kind of measure as to what the market is doing. Um, and you know, along those lines, like my collection of cards has gone up close 
to three acts, and I don't really hold a lot of scarce cards. My most scarce card is a Russell Westbrook assist in Series 2, which, yeah, it's it, it's nice value, and you know, I bought it because of the swish value that I thought it had. Um, but, you know, I, I I wonder if, as we move forward, if it's just the scarcity that draws the most amount of money. Like, I, I'm starting to get a little bit concerned that the swish intrinsic value isn't dawning on, on a lot of new users. Um, mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then where is the intrinsic value in this thing? I, I don't think there's a zero case, but I, I, I am a little bit concerned about it. What I will say is that there are a lot of problems that get solved with virtual trading cards, that a lot of problems that physical trading cards have. So if I want to go and I want to invest in some player's bone chromato, and you know his card goes for fifty bucks, and I buy and I pay pay five dollars shipping on eBay. So I have to wait a week for it to get here, and then you know sometimes a bit a big thing when it comes to physical trading cards is the grading. So um, I don't know how familiar you are with grading, but no, I'm not. You know you send so you send so you send your cards to either BGS or PSA. Those are the two major grading companies, okay. and they grade uh, your card on four scales. So it's the edges, the corners, the surface, and the centering. Okay. So basically, you have absolutely no control over, you know, those are like physical printing evaluations. So you have no control over that. So a card that gets sent in that grades a 9.5 BGS is worth way more than one that gets graded a 9. And if it's a Bowman Chrome and you get below a 9, it's actually worth less. Um, but you have no control over those. But that entire part literally goes away with virtual trading cards. Right. So what that one tweet was mentioning, like printing lines is a big problem. So if I buy a product and I open up a pack or a box and I pull an amazing card, like the most valuable card in that product, but it's got a printing line on it by accident, then I know that if I grade it, this, the grading is going to be lower because there's an issue on the surface. That completely goes away completely goes hmm, away that's interesting with, with, virtual, with virtual trading cards and then how it pertains like almost the spread so i'm buying this card for fifty dollars i'm paying five dollars for shipping and i have to wait a week so that's ten percent imagine if you went to go buy stock and it was like okay there's going to be a ten percent tax on this stock then you have to have the stock value go up an extra ten percent in order for you to um make any profit and then if you're selling on like ebay or an amazon or something like that then they take away 10%. So you really need to make a 20% gain on any kind of asset in order to actually be in the profit, hmm. which sucks. That's so much. Sure. This is a problem that goes away with virtual trading cards. Well, so it's interesting um, you bring this up because there's actually a, um, an issue uh, that has come to light that a Marcus Smart card and a Zion Williamson card have misprints on their information in the moment. Now... It is being touted at the moment as a even more scarce feature to that sort of player line of cards. Zion Williamson obviously being a, uh, a high commodity card right now. Um, and it, it seems, I mean, I, I'm not quite sure. I haven't seen how the market's reacting. As you can see, we're still in a, in a timeout. But it was my understanding that those cards are going to have greater value as opposed to lesser value than maybe we're seeing on the trading card market like thoughts on that um if anything it's a benefit that that online trading cards might have because there's no such thing as 
a, a baseball card that has an error made on it in the modern age that is and and it makes the value go up so like Frank Thomas sure there's a Frank Thomas error card where his name is not on the card it's just like an empty blue space okay. and that one sells for X times over more than the regular one okay so that's a scenario but that's an old card see in the modern era there's such an such an emphasis on the grade that that, that, does, that, that doesn't happen if I get a Bowman Chrome card and there's a printing line on it the value goes down or if there's a misprint or or whatever it comes folded in half the value does not go up it definitely goes down people would rather just have the regular correct quality piece and see this is the this is the type of stuff that like makes me uninterested as an investor because like i'm just betting or i'm gambling on someone else's opinion at this point like in the future is someone going to value this misprint more or less than the original copy like uh, that's uninteresting to me what right. is interesting to me is like how am I going to be able to use these cards, right? Um, but you know, you yourself as a trading card collector, I would imagine that intrinsic value, at least up until this point, really doesn't mean much to you. Um, and so, what do you think about kind of my argument that I'm I'm really centered in on just intrinsic value? I mean, that's where you got to start when it comes to evaluating. Like you know, fundamental analysis is the heart of all analysis when it comes to any kind of asset. Sure. I do think that it's twofold with, with NBA blank shot. It's, it is the fantasy aspect, which I think is a massive advantage. It's something to do with the moment because with the bait with, with a baseball card, I can go to my, you know, my room right now, pull out my favorite baseball card. It's a super fractor of my best, one of my best friends, a guy I played with, and it's an absolutely beautiful, stunning card. It's an absolute work of art. He's got a great signature. Um, you don't have that same thing with like a moment, but you have the fantasy playing aspect. And I think that that is absolutely vital to the um, in, in intrinsic value argument. But what one thing that I, I don't think that you talked about, but the bigger part is so with tops, with baseball cards, there's a competing company called Panini. The difference is that tops has an exclusivity license. So tops can put any of the major league logos, or designs, or whatever, any of the players' names on their products. Panini's actually not allowed to do that. So with Panini trading cards, the players literally have blank logos. They have nothing. They wear, like, gray jerseys. It's all Photoshopped out. And that's ugly. And that has been a huge, huge profit killer for Panini. And so I think with NBA Blank Shot, as long as they have some kind of exclusivity, like, as long as, long as NBA Blank Shot is the online trading card for NBA trading cards, as long as they have that exclusivity, then there is intrinsic value there in that exclusivity. I see. So you're, it's your argument to say that as long as there's no other competing product, they're going to have intrinsic value. As long as those competing products don't have an NBA license. And I would imagine that they'll be able to secure that as they've partnered up with that brand, with the Players Association and the, the league as a whole. Um, don't want to speculate, but um, who's to say that, um, that this space doesn't necessarily just stay within kind of like a trading card sort of center, but isn't to expand to more of a revolutionary sort of beginning towards like the digit did it i can't even say the word digitization 
of art as a whole. And, um, you know, when we spoke the other day, Rick, I introduced the idea of burning a card. And, you know, this burning a card is, uh, the idea of it is, is to transition a physical collectible into a digitized token. Um, and this tokenization process ultimately would leave the uh, owner with the uh, mandatory, ch- uh, well, they, what they have to do is just burn the card and, and leave its existence online. Um, and you really hated this idea. And so tell us why you hate this idea. Well, I think that there's, well, the one thing, so the difference with like tra- what I said the other day when we talked, the difference in like trading cards and art is the difficulty of creation. Um, I think with art, like it requires you to be born with some kind of level of excellence in that field in addition to years of practice and then putting it all together. And then there's also the age. I mean, you know, name me a piece of artwork that somebody made in the last 10 years that is in art history textbooks. None. They're all a couple hundred years old. It's like, it's like, it's like certain alcohols, like they, they get better with age. Just because they do. That's well, just what it, but why does history have to be in a history book? You know what I mean? Like, what, like, like, what? Why does you know a valuable piece of art have to be recognized in a in a book? You know what I mean? Like, I think that's kind of what this space does. Is is that it it turns demand on its head like we're no longer sending cards to be graded like we're no longer waiting on the beckets of the world to say hey this is how much this card is worth and you can rely on us to reevaluate this at the time of our choosing like no the market's live and it's real and, and people can make decisions on their own um that will ultimately in the long run be collected to determine its overall price value um, so let me let me ask you a question Take like a super famous piece of artwork and say we tokenize it. Mm-hmm. During the time that it has been tokenized and the time that has yet to be burned, would you say that two of these items exist? It wouldn't be complete until it's burnt. So what but I'm asking about that period in which it has technically been tokenized, at least just strictly from like a digital standpoint. But it just has yet to be burned. What what is that period? What is that stage? Uh, purgatory. I don't know. Like it, it's it, like ultimately like it has not become tokenized until the physical object has has been burnt. And once it's once it combusts, it is then com- like completed the phase of digitization. And that, I at, think, at that juncture, it become it becomes existent in the digital world. Right. So I, I would make the argument just philosophically that you have created a copy. It's a very, very unique way of making a copy of something, but you have created a copy evidenced by the fact, again, just purely philosophical argument that at one point in time there existed two. So if physical and digital existence are equal and there is this purgatory period where there is a digital and physical existence of one, then it must be the case that one of them is an imposter of the other. Well, if that's the case, then the Fed has been copying money for just about a decade or so because they're just 
pressing zero on the keyboard and that period that you're now in question of is now copying money that's already out there. So if you want to say that that is the case, that you're making a copy, that doesn't necessarily diminish the value. Otherwise, the value of the dollar has already sunk and we just don't know it yet. So... Oh, but I believe everything that you just said. Well, so, so, but like, that's the problem is, is, is that like, it, you know, it, we are in this transition phase and, you know, referring back to how we started this conversation, um, which was, let me get that exact tweet back up. Uh, good Lord. I'm not doing a good job on this one. Not doing a good job. It's all good. The zero to one and then one to many. The tweet that inspired me to say that, right? Right. It, it's it's not designed; it is evolved, right? And so, like, w- as it's evolving, like, there's no reason to say this is what it is or this is what it's not. You know, like, it is becoming into its own. And I mean, like, I, I see it as like when something gets tokenized, it is the state of evolution that ultimately gets it to where I believe everything will go. Like. I think what we're seeing here is is that Bitcoin started what is now going to be the age of digitization, and everything is slowly going to become or have some sort of digital presence. And this like intangible idea of what means for something to be digital will feel more and more tangible. You know, it's it's no longer going to be this crazy idea that something lives in cyberspace. Like, I think there's going to be like a recognition of real estate in the digital landscape. How so? How far does that go? Like, what what is something that can't be can't be tokenized or digitized? I mean, I don't think there are limits. I think the limits are how we see them, you know, and I think that's a really interesting idea. Like we don't, we don't, I mean, value is what we create it to be, you know, value is what our, the labor that we've done in the past, that investment of labor, what do we decide to put it into? Like, that's the way I see money and value. And, you know, where does it go in the digital world? Well, we go where we see value. You know, I like if trading cards that have, you know, a minted scarcity that have a YouTube clip of a guy dunking, like if that's what we believe value to be and where we want to store the, you know, hardships of our labor, like, great, mm-hmm. like, we should do that. Um, I personally am not going to sink all of my assets into something that I don't see where the intrinsic functional value will be. But I think someone like yourself who has a, a greater interest and in more of a, uh, a, a positive experience with trading cards might not view the intrinsic value so harshly in that as long as NBA bottom shot is the only product, that is going to be sufficient uh, intrinsic value for you. Um, or maybe you're just super bullish on the speculative value, like whatever. But I think, you know... Ultimately, as we progress past the pandemic, I do see a world where we all as individuals have greater choice and greater ability to broadcast our voice. And we do that through how we uh, expend the fruits of our previous labor. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, I think 
So, so when you say like speculation, when you say like things have value because we say they have value, that's like purely an extrinsic value argument. And then they have a functionality that's an intrinsic value argument. Well, and, right, and, that's accurate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and my point is to say is like when they blend together, that's when like true, um, true value can be found. Mm-hmm. And you think NBA blank shot is like, well, I mean, Bitcoin is a start, right? And then NBA blank shot is starting to show us how far something like this could spread. Have you ever heard of Robert Breedlove's um, zero correlation to Bitcoin? The revolutionary um, reason, like the, how the the legend of zero, like launched everything else, like how zero is like Bitcoin. I have not. I've not. I totally oh, know who Robert Breedlove is, and man. I follow him, but I, I haven't read that. I, I really before. hesitate even talking about it because it's so complex of an idea, and I would be butchering it if I tried. But I'll try anyways. <laughs> this um, what Breedlove does is he kind of goes back into the history of time, and he um, evaluates how the number system came to be and and how money became money. And in in his research, he found that the Arab Hindu numerical system was the, you know, ultimately the numerical system that carries on until today. And what they did differently than the other numerical systems that had been um, prevalent in the same time period, which were the Greek uh, numerical system, the Roman numerical system, was is that the Arab Hindu system included the number zero. All the other numerical systems had no zero value. And at the time, it was a fought against concept. Uh, Rome, uh, being the global power, was able to keep that number system outside of their finances, outside of their calculation systems, until ultimately the Arab Hindu numerical system ate up that system after their empire had collapsed. And this numerical or this Arab Hindu numerical system was proven to be better and more effective. Uh, And so Breedlove kind of runs with that idea that there are certain things that are so revolutionary and just better than what is being currently being used that over time it'll ultimately get swallowed up and soaked up by the more effective, more efficient system. Um, and so in this case, Breedlove kind of expands to suggest that this uh, number zero and this like adoption of the Arab Hindu numerical system leads to negative numbers, which in turn leads to imaginary numbers, which imaginary numbers is the basis for, you know, a a lot of the engineering concepts and physics concepts that are being used today. Don't ask me about those. I don't know anything about that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, also very interestingly, Breedlove makes a connection to the idea of the creation of banks and how the first bank was um, a Dutch bank. And the English, um, uh, the English kingdom at the time had, you know, saw what a interesting idea this was, 
and found that they could finance their wars and um, continue their colonial expeditions by this idea of credit and being able to spread credit around and make money off of other people taking credit within their own uh, borders. Um, This ultimately leads to the idea of debasement, which is to uh, inflate or conflate a supply of debt by increasing the supply. So it, you know, at one point there was this idea of the one pound sterling and that was just a pound of silver and that was more or less the, uh, a unit of measure. Um, and when the English bank got into a you know, financial crisis, what they told the people is, is that one pound, one sterling had to be accompanied by one pound of gold until ultimately it was just the gold that became the standard. But that difference where they ultimately charged more to achieve that same unit of measure is considered debasement. Um, And, you know, I think anybody who is believes in, you know, the uh, impending inflation doom that our country might face suggests that this quantitative easing is just a very complicated form of debasement. Yeah, that is such an I like that is such an interesting topic. How like the the inclusion of zero has this butterfly effect, and it you know like you said. So now we have from, from zero, we have the other side of the number line. We now have negative numbers. I mean, we're talking like that single step in mankind. Like we invented calculus off of, off of that. Right. Right. Um, high, higher level maths, which allows to do high level physics which allows us to do high-level chemistry, which allows us to do high-level biology. I mean, we're talking that is borderline one of, like, the most important steps intellectually that mankind had ever had, had ever had to make because of the butterfly effect that it, it, it did. It's crazy. It's crazy. And, and you know, I we, when I talk about all of this, like, I, I, I apologize to the listener because I don't do a good enough job of, of summing up that argument succinctly. But what I do think is is that this butterfly effect is going to be seen in NBA bottom shot. Really see that. I think what this does is is that it forces all of the major sports teams or sports leagues, I should say, across the country and globally to participate in this sort of individual like asset exchange experience where fans are no longer rooting for their home teams. They're rooting for the players they own stock in. I think that's incredibly right. fascinating. Um, it was, totally. It's no, um, it's no hidden fact that uh, the sport watching has gone down in the pandemic. Um, and I think this is a way to re-engage fandom. Um, and I also think that there will be something more that evolves off of this, whether it's Swish, whether it's this hardcore app that like really captures the intrinsic value and like will ultimately get like create almost like a new stock exchange that include that is centered on the value of a player, a value of an athlete. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, this really just reminds me of uh, a conversation I had in my religion class in college with a professor. Okay. And so he, he asked the class, he goes, um, you know, who here like collects like memorabilia, like signed baseballs or big cards. And of course I raised my hand. Right. And he goes, 
and goes, okay, well, well, what, what, what do you like about that? Like when you have a player's signed autograph on the ball, like what, what is that transfer? And I go, it's like, it's kind of like a part of them. Like you're kind of like holding on to them. And he goes, exactly. It's essence. And so I think with, you know, blank shot and even with like physical trading cards, there is definitely an intrinsic value in that you're holding on to an, a, a portion, a, a, an essence of that player. And I think that that is what kind of gives it like this almost stock market feel where it's like this, this asset that I'm holding on to is going to correlate with the performance of the certain players. I mean, what does that sound like? It sounds like a stock market. And, you know, what are stocks? Essences of company. So it just really gives me flashbacks to that conversation I had in my religion class. Yeah, awesome that you bring that up because uh, the, the actually the next guest of Burning Conversations will be Wade.eth. He's an Aussie, Eastern Aussie, and he threw out this tweet yesterday saying, when it comes to the NBA bottom shot, it's no longer about the experience of collecting and making money. It's now about owning a piece of history. And Boom, there you go. And like, Same thing. Like buying up the early domain names when others were saying the internet would never work slash take off. So I, you know, it's, I don't know if NBA bottom shot is zero, but I think it is, you know, a, a subsequent revolutionary piece from Bitcoin that Bitcoin kind of got kicked in gear. And, you know, Bitcoin launched the Ethereum network, which launched CryptoKitties which now launched NBA Bottom Shot, which I think will be like a stock exchange sort of athlete experience, which is, I think, going to really, really capture a lot of people's attention once they figure it out. Mm-hmm. Totally. I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the conversation that we had about art, and I, I, I we said this, I said this, like, you know, when we talked to the it, it, it's going to be a long. It's going to be a little bit longer time before you have me in when it comes to art. But when it comes to the essence of players and, and, and trading and collectibles, like I, I believe it. Like I believe that the digital age is is knocking on the door. Yeah. And I think this is we're we're yeah knocking on the door. Like we're 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 here, and people just need to be prepared and understand that you know it's not going to be Panini Prism anymore. It's going to be you know NBA Top Shot Cool Cats. Mm, mm. Well, I mean, I'll say this, like, you know, you mentioned at one point, like, you don't know which packs will sell, which will be uh, like more valuable. The Cool Cats is a common pack. Like everyone needs to remember that it's a common pack and they can't get them out on the market. Too many people are hitting refresh before they can get out. That's nuts. And like, I understand a lot of people are upset about the website and them not being able to pull it off. But like, at what point do you just say, this is absolutely ridiculous, the amount of demand yeah. that's getting flowed into this thing. Yeah. So it's funny. I was just uh, talking uh, with uh, Veg, our friend Veg, yeah. on the phone, and he was, he was just at Target buying some, some NBA hoops, and he said, you know, Rick, like, there's a ton of baseball stuff out there. Like, people aren't buying like that baseball stuff. So it's all crap. So, like, people, like, people aren't going to buy crap, right? Like, if it's just Series 1 baseball, like, regular tops. Like, that's not a great product heritage like those are things to open up for fun but definitely nothing in terms of like an asset like it's purely an entertainment thing um this evidence by the fact that they're flying off the shelves is because they're assets it's not crap it's because they are things that are worth holding on to that have a real chance of appreciating a value that's what people buy 
I mean, I've invested in the cards that I own today right around $450. And on intangible.market, they have me valued at $1,309. I mean, that's ridiculous. Unbelievable. Three extra money uh, all day, man. All day. And that's not even including the Deck the Hoops pack that I still refuse to open. So, we'll, I mean, we'll see. And like, th- those prices are going up too. Jay Tatum was worth or had a low market ask of nine ninety nine, and now it's at like $5,000. It's unbelievable. So, I think I asked you this the other day when we talked, and I think it's worth talking about on a podcast. What is it that's going to be, you know, when you're looking at this five years from now? So, like w- with baseball, like what we, what we look at is like the update rookie. So, like with Trout. Like Trout had a number of rookie cards out there because Tops and Bowman make a number of products, but the rookie card is the eleven, the twenty eleven Tops update. That's the one. It's just a regular card, probably a couple thousand, you know, minted, but it's going for a grand, ungraded. So you know, and then what I was telling you about like with Pokemon cards, the base set series one first edition, the 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 shadowless ones. You know, even if you have like a common card from that, like that goes for money. Sure. And don't even get me started if you have like a Charizard from that or sure. a holographic Charizard or Blastoise or whatever. So in five years from now, in 10 years from now, what do you think has the chance that people are going to look back at? I know you talked about, you know, a Russell Westbrook assist being the only assist card moment that Russell Westbrook has or something of that nature. Is it going to be series one? Is it going to be just just the player, just the outright player? Is it going to be, you know, anything from the first three series like what could be like the original NBA top shot set? What what how far does that look like? You know, I, I'm not I didn't get in early enough to know exactly the answer to that question. Um, the there are like I mentioned earlier, some misprint Zion cards that I think have a chance to be like the ultimate scarce beginning value card. Um and no, I mean the what the Russ Westbrook card that I have is a rare copy that's one through forty nine in existence. So I wouldn't necessarily say that I there's supreme scarcity there. Um, I think there's the LeBron tribute dunk that recently sold for forty seven foul. Um, that 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 may be the most scarce card. Like if I had. You know, an unlimited amount of funds to invest in this space, and didn't necessarily care about risk. I would definitely buy that card. I think that has right. a chance of being the ultimate value card. Um, I mean, I think there, Luka Doncic is in high demand, and I think that maybe explains some of the ultra demand for these cool cat cards. As if you collect all five cool cats, you get the Luka Doncic cool cat right. challenge reward um so you know i'm interested to see how it develops into the space i mean the one thing that i thought was kind of an interesting concept in the swish circle is is that they were thinking about expanding from just the kind of beginning model of having five players two two point options a three-point assist and a defensive player changing that around to having five players that could have three or four moments attached to them to be a complete player so you ultimately play a significant um, more amount of moments um 
and thus can you know like the diversity of your collection i think plays a greater role Um, right that's also my understanding of how hard court will work that you use your moments for a virtual player that ultimately takes those attributes and plays some sort of game with those attributes that the moments um kind of export um but you know all of that stuff is is in its real infant phases you know i I think there will be a problem with the fact that the uh, there are some big collectors with a lot of cards in their collection. Um, it is right. getting a little top heavy. Yeah, there's some whales, and um, you know I, I think those whales are are interesting. <laughs> you know, like Pranksy on Twitter is uh, he considers him or herself. I, I don't know how they. Uh, classify themselves, but or identify, I should say. Um, but uh, they have uh, an extraordinary, like uh, an extraordinary amount of cards, and they're constantly flipping for like six-figure profits. It's unbelievable. Wow. Um, supposedly, Pranksy's on doing some sort of NFT project, which I'd love to hear because, like, dude, that Discord channel is hieroglyphics. You simply cannot understand what's going on in there there's too much information flying at one time i don't know i need a map or something to figure out my way just to like <laughs> how to get out of the space let alone to get back into it do you so I, I i got on this morning before we we went on this timeout i see a lot of cards of like nobody kind of like nobody basketball players they're cc this is nine thousand plus so we know that these are abundant Right. Do you think even kind of things like that could be overvalued? Like, should I, should I drop ten dollars and just snatch up ten one dollar ones just so I can say I can have some moments? Because maybe these things are, you know. So, so we were talking about Giannis on Ten Kupo, um, who I love. I, I just I had fantasy draft yesterday. Took him. I had first overall. And I took him. I have his shoes too. I love Giannis. Um, so his Prism rookies are going for thirteen hundred. And it looks like the rare version of his Series 1s, or, or if I have that correct, are kind of going around the same range. So the entirety of the NBA basketball community together views the rookie card as 1300 But the entirety of the NBA blank shot community views it as 1300 And the NBA blank shot community is a fraction of the size of people that spend money on NBA trading cards. So once do you, do you think that there could be like this wild undervaluation for, for all moments right now that these $1 ones are really worth like $5? I mean, I think you, everyone should make that sort of assessment based off of like what your fundamental belief is about this space and about like this like new NFT space. You know, like I, I think you should be figuring out what intrinsic value means to you and then acting in that sort of accordance. Like if you see swish as the place where your moments work for you and that's where the intrinsic value is, go ahead. Um, I totally understand why somebody might say that that intrinsic value is kind of determined on the amount of users that will ultimately join swish. And if you, someone doesn't believe that users will flock to swish as they flocked to the platform itself, then I get that. Um, I think that for me, if I was a trader, like I really like 
James Harden assist, the legend card. I think that has swish value, and I also think that that has continued value with James Harden. Like, it looks like that Nets team is pretty good, and they might make a run. Yeah, yeah something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're okay. Yeah, they're okay. They're right. I mean, you know, whenever there's more talent, there's more problems. I think, the, you know, they're going to have to address that. Um, yeah. And, you know, like the Clippers of last year, like, they really didn't have it down the stretch. Um, that being said, you know, I... I don't see how those three guys, along with DeAndre Jordan, by the way, and Joe Harris and Jeff Green, like that's that's a pretty impressive season's lineup. You know, like if nothing else, they're all men there. They, there's no growing pains in terms of development. Like they all are who they are, uh, and and maybe, you know, I won't speak for Kyrie, but maybe they bring some sort of maturity to, you know, the huddle as opposed to previous years. But, you know, I, before we finish up here, well, I'll, I'll ask you this one question. You know, I, I know you asked me a question I didn't answer, and whatever, we're moving on. Where do you think this space ends up? Like, if in, in five years, how does this space look like? I mean, I think that the, the, the number of users is going to explode. Okay. I, I definitely believe that tsunami. See, tsunami. It's a tsunami. Right. Right. I, I definitely believe that. I see how many. You know, what what isn't talked about is that the explosion of trading sports collectibles, like in the last five years. So, I got into trading cards in 2017, like like heavily got in. I was always like a casual. But I heavily got into buying and investing and whatnot in 2017 when Aaron Judge and Cody Bellinger became, like, the dudes to have. They were the hot rookies playing big markets, L.A., New York. Everyone wants a Judge and a Bellinger card, okay? Since then, the prices of sealed wax or, like, just sealed hobby boxes has two to three x So things like Bowman Draft, super popular, probably the most popular product out there, has tripled in price, tripled in we're talking three, four years, five years. And so this this the, the the collectible space in general is absolutely exploding. And I think once this younger gen like people my age, even like your age and your age and below, are living in this digitized world, once we start getting you know a little bit older, a little more income, think like, all right, well, I'm 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 finally I'm not a kid anymore shopping at Target. I have some money and I want to have some fun. Like you know, where are they going to put their money into trading cards? Cause that's what's that, that, that's just how it works. Right. And if it's going to go digital, this is going to be, this is going to be that space. Yeah. So I definitely see, you know, I, I, it's hard to speak about like the net value of the entire basket of all of the top uh, of the blank shop moments that are out there. But I, I, I'm very confident for sure that the number of users, I think you said 20,000 last time you checked way too small. No, it's ten thousand. Ten X. It's right now at ten thousand, or a little bit higher than ten thousand. It's too small because yeah. way more people than that collect collect uh, physical cards, and they they will make the move to digital at one point or another. Especially these younger collectors, too small. You know, I just hope it doesn't you know ultimately transpire in a constant website crash. You know, like I, those guys obviously are you know have created a monster, and you're going to hear no bitch from me, but which. <laughs> 
I, I, I do worry that it's just constant crashing, you know, like that would be a real buzzkill. You know, if we can just keep this thing live, keep getting packs out, regardless of how smooth it is, just keep getting them out. They're saying they're going to drop a Monday, Thursday. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's, um, you know, to, to aid your point, I think it's a little bit more morbid from my vantage point in that when these boomers who are resisting this digitization, when they start dying, and more and more of these younger people who are interested in investing in cards become of the adult age and have more of the wealth in their possession, that's when you see a super explosion, you know? Right. Yeah. Totally. Um, and, um, you know, it's <laughs> what a time, you know, like we are truly in a transformation. Couldn't be any more excited to continue to watch it happen. Richard Conti, thanks for coming on. What a, what a blast it's been. We covered some things. We we danced around some subjects that we continue to know, you know, very little about and shouldn't be talking about, but we're doing so anyways. Hopefully, uh, you know, listeners get something out of it. Um, any last words, Rick, before we, we sign off? Uh, whoever has the most fun wins. Wow. Okay. Love that. Love that. That's all. Love whoever that. has the most fun wins. Love that. All right, man. Well, Thanks for coming on and, and excited to have Wades on in uh, hopefully this weekend. So until awesome. then. Thanks for having me, Coach. Appreciate it. Love it.